Of course, one of the important phrases of that song is the Bible tells me so. What does the Bible tell us in Psalm 38? That is the question this morning as we address that particular portion of scripture. And I have to say, in this particular scripture, we are reminded of a connection between our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. Now, there are those who mistakenly teach that illness is due to lack of faith. Now, we don't teach such nonsense. But on the other hand of the spectrum are those that suggest there is no relationship between physical maladies and spiritual issues. This psalm makes it very clear that there are times where the Lord may use physical unpleasantness, even great illness or other physical conditions, for either penal or disciplinary issues. David is writing here in the sense of someone who is very ill, and that illness is there because God placed that illness on him to get him to confess his sin. Follow along as I read from Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So we consider this wonderful psalm. Let us turn first briefly to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, you inspired David to write this psalm. It contains much wonderful truth. I pray, Lord, that you will help me to get out of the way, that your word might do its work by your spirit. 
And Lord, that you might convict and convince us of our sin, that we might turn to you in faith and repentance. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. If they are not consistent with your word, let them pass away and never be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. I have heard it a few times. Pastor, you talk about sin too much. It makes people feel bad. It's not quite inviting. Will you have people come into your church if all you do every Sunday is at some point in your service tell them that they're sinners? Well, you don't know the half of it. You see, sin affects every aspect of our well-being. In fact, the gospel isn't good news unless we know the bad news. The bad news is this. Every single person in this room is a terrible, awful sinner. If you were to go to God with what you think is wonderful things about your life and give them to God and say, God, here is how wonderful I am. I want what's coming to me. We would all be in trouble. When God looks at our righteousness, he sees filthy rags. And of course, if you've heard sermons on that particular topic, you know the word filthy there is really disgusting. Sin affects every aspect of our well-being. It affects our relational aspect between God and us. It affects our horizontal relationship between us and others. It affects our mental outlook on life. It affects our physical It even gives us lack of sleep, depression, a sense of abandonment, paranoia, and the list goes on. That's just a part of it. And in case you think I'm just saying that because I want you to know how bad sin is or because there's some way in which conservative believers or followers in a particular understanding of the scripture wants to overemphasize sin, this psalm proves it. This psalm confirms the truth about sin's effects on someone who is unrepentant. Of course, this is under the condition that that person is one of God's sheep. Because we know that those who will not repent, who will not come in in humility before God... At some point, their conscience will be seared to the point that they don't feel the effects of sin and evil and guilt anymore. But for those who are God's people, this is a reminder that sin has its lasting effects on us, and it can be overwhelming. David writes how he is sick with his sin. He writes about how he feels isolated in his sin, And yet at the end, here's the gospel part, the understanding that he's saved from his sin. First of all, here is perhaps one of the most troubling passages about the effects of sin. He's sick with it. O Lord, he says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, your hand has come down on me, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. You see, when we're sick with sin, it's because of the Lord's discipline. Notice he uses three different words there for anger, 
Our English says anger, wrath, and indignation. Sometimes people will say God doesn't get angry. God is a God of love. Well, that's not the God of the scriptures. That's a God that somebody's made up. God is love. Scripture does tell us this. Our model and understanding of love is because God expresses love to us and reveals how he loves us in his scriptures. So those relationships and experiences of a believer to God and the truth of scripture reveals what God's love is like. But God's love is such that when his sheep sin, he's angry at them. When I sin, he's angry at my sin. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. After all, Scripture also tells us Jesus calls God his Father. And we understand from Scripture that God is a Father to his people. And I'm a Father. When my kids sin against me, I get angry. Sometimes I get angry in a sinful way because I'm not God. And my anger is sinful in the extent that I want to take it out on my children or take it out on something else or to do something in an improper way. But scripture reminds us and tells us, be angry but do not sin. God can do this. We don't do this very well. But when it says here that God is angry at David's sin... It's an anger that contains no sense of vengeance upon his sheep, no sense of unrighteous jealousy that they are somewhere else than they need to be. Now, he is a jealous God. He wants us to have him alone as our God. But there is no sense of sin in God's righteous anger against his sheep. And yes... Even if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you sin, God will still get angry at your sin. And what does he do about it? Well, notice what it says in verse 2. Your arrows have sunk into me. He pierces us. Now, of course, it's not that he is literally shooting arrows at us. How many of you have had an arrow strike you from God from heaven? I don't think anybody has in this room. Even though God told the Israelites when they were approaching Mount Sinai that if they went up and broke up the mountain, then it could be possible they would be shot through with an arrow because God is holy and the people were not. Yet, of course, we know this is a poetic description, don't we? This is a poem. Now, some of the things in the poem are very true. I think probably David is writing at a time when he really was sick. We don't know the illness. It doesn't describe that. In fact, here we can't even but postulate of what particular sin David might have committed when he's writing that. Now, we know some of David's sins in Scripture. But at some point, he felt ill and overwhelming. And here in verse 2, he reminds us as he pleads for God to take it easy on him and lighten the load of discipline because of the sin he has committed, he still admits that it's as if an arrow has penetrated and pierced him. And it says, your hand has come down on me. It's not only pierced him, but pressed upon him. He feels as if something has gone into his inner being and damaged him, and he is being weighted down with sin. 
Charles Spurgeon says this, conviction of sin wounds deeply and rankles long. But perhaps the more troubling aspect is the second half of verse 3 and what follows. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Now when you first read this, you think, well, that means it's just figurative. It just means that it seems to be overwhelming. But as you read through the next few verses of the psalm, you realize he's describing real physical issues here. There's a real physical sense here of what has taken place. And we know in scripture that God at times will send plagues upon his people in order to get them to turn from their sins. So we see that there is both physical and spiritual anguish right here in verse 3. In one sense, here the health in my bones But then in verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. So it's real physical weakness and sickness. But there's also this overwhelming burden of sin, which can be described as a combination of, of mental trouble and spiritual weakness. Again, Charles Spurgeon, verse 4, there's a genuine cry of someone who feels undone by his sins. You see what God is doing in his discipline is he's making the sin that David committed. And for you and me at times, the sin that we commit, any believer, the sin that we commit, he, he penetrates the evil nature of that sin and, and the gravity of that sin. And he places us in such a position that we will be overwhelmed by the sinfulness of our sin and the brokenness of our relationship and fellowship with God. In other words, there will be times for a believer when because of your sin, you feel as if you cannot take it anymore. And sometimes it may even express itself in an illness or disease of some sort. In fact, verse 5 is even more vile. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. First of all, this idea here, the true festering of infectious sores. You know what he's talking about? We, we know, if you haven't experienced this yourself, you know, and you've seen perhaps on a movie or read about it in a book when somebody gets an infection. I remember my dad talked about how when he was young, he got athlete's foot. And, and I don't know how it happened, but his athlete's foot got infected and it began to, to run these lines up his leg. And, and it, was, it was in danger. If something wasn't done about it, he could have lost his leg. And, of course, we all know that if there are open wounds, if there are open wounds and and they get infected, they they start to to leak out that awful pus and they smell and it's disgusting. And why does David say this is taking place? Is it just because of the science of what happens when you get an infection? He says it's because of my folly, my foolishness. The true festering here in this particular instance is not just physical, although it is physical. 
In this case, there is a connection between his sin and his illness such that when he sees and smells the disgusting nature of these festering wounds, he understands that he's in this condition because of his foolishness. Now, now could it be that David did something stupid and he got wounded in the process? Yeah, I guess that's true, a direct correlation. But we don't know that's necessarily the case. Somehow David is revealed, perhaps it's by inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes this psalm. He understands that for some reason God has put him in this physical condition to become aware of his sinful condition. And it leads not only to the physical, vile, disgusting nature of festering sores and unhealthy bones, but notice what it says about the morning. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. There's now a deep, penetrating depression that's going on. Now, of course, we're not going to go up here in, in a way and say in a very harsh, unforgiving reality that everyone who's depressed is because they're sinful and so forth and so on. No, that's not necessarily what's going on here. But every time we see a believer in deep depression, it might be important for us to touch gently on the wounds and say, is there some sin in your life that is unconfessed? Because the reality of the guilt of our sin can press us down and make us depressed and give us the restlessness of guilt and shame. You're not going to find that in most secular psychologist offices. You're not going to find that with, with necessarily medical doctors prescribing medication. Some of these things are important in some situations. But here is a reminder that sometimes, not every time somebody's depressed, but sometimes that depression is deep and penetrating because God is touching the very raw nature of our sin such that we must become aware of it, even if it means that we wallow in our sin, even if it means that our guilt is a burden that we feel we cannot bear, even if it means we've gotten to the end of everything and feel as if we cannot come out of it on our own because, you know, we really can't anyway. We love the story of the prodigal son in the book of Luke, don't we? You know, the younger son, he is very rude to his father, he basically says, Dad, I'm ready for you to die. I want your stuff. And he goes off to another land after his father, for whatever reason, gave him his stuff. And he goes off to another land, and he spends lavishly and foolishly and lives a life that should not be lived. And he comes to the point where everything is spent, everything is gone, and he's wallowing in a pig field, understanding that, of course, Jews reading that story would have known that in their context, pig flesh was unacceptable. They were unclean animals. He's wallowing in the pigs, trying to feed them the pods, while meanwhile he's starving to death. This is physical. This is not only physical, he probably got to the point where he was a little depressed. And it seemed to be overwhelming, and it tells us that he came to his senses. 
this is an understanding here that he came to the end of himself. He realized there was nothing he could do to solve his problem. That's how much God loves us. He's willing to do whatever it takes to bring us back. If we're the one out of the hundred sheep wandering from the fold, he goes to search out that sheep to bring them back. Even if it means the way he's searching is to touch them with physical disease or malady. Even if it means it's to give them anguish over something that has happened in their life. Even if it means that he will give them deep and dark depression so that they will come to the end of themselves and not know what to do. The Lord will use whatever it takes to reclaim his sheep. Even if it means the depressive state of a terribly ill person. And of course, it's not just that they'll be depressed, is it? It's that you'll feel like you're alone, isolated in my sin. Verse 9, O Lord, all my longings before you, my sighing is hidden from you, my heart throbs. My strength fails me in the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. These are feelings of isolation. Now, we understand the promise. Jesus says, I will never leave you or abandon you. So in a relational aspect, that relationship never changes. God is still our God. He is, we are still his sheep. But sin breaks the fellowship of that relationship. And when it breaks that fellowship, then we feel like God has abandoned us. There are times when particularly we might have lived a life of sin or we might have struggled with a particular sin for a long period of time where we've fallen into some great sin, even on a temporary measure. And we come and we wonder, where is God in all this? Because the fellowship has been broken. My heart throbs, it palpitates, it moves back and forth, kind of a weird Hebrew word and tense My strength fails me. The light of my eyes is gone from me. In other words, I feel like I'm dying. There's a sense of longing for him. I want what was once mine. I want that relationship that I had before. I want that relationship with you where I knew you had my back. You were with me. You would defend me. You would protect me and guard me. You loved me and you gathered me in. I want that back. There's also a sense of dying evident. Now, this may be literal in this sense, in this context of this chapter. We don't know. It might not be. Whatever the situation, that's what he feels like. He feels like the, his life is ebbing away, and it's going to be in a time when God seems to be absent. There are feelings of isolation from the Lord himself, but then it's multiplied by the episodes of isolation from those who are close. First of all, he says, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. Sometimes friends do stay away from the sickness. One of the saddest things about the COVID times in 2020 was that the hospitals mandated this. They mandated that friends stay away because of the illness. What a terrible thing to do. But here, this idea that they will stay, sometimes they will. We don't like to see sick people. 
We don't like to smell the halls of a hospital. We don't like the situations where we might, in order to go into a room, have to put on gloves and masks and all this kind of stuff. I've done that. We, we don't want to go in a room where everybody is sad and suffering and, and it brings back bad memories, all these things. And so sometimes, sometimes it's not even that, that the friend is intentionally staying away. It's that they just can't deal with it themselves. And so the friends are gone. Not only that, but relatives sometimes become remote. It says, my nearest kin stand far off. This is true too. Sometimes our children can't deal with it, and they're gone. Sometimes even the ones we think are the closest to us are the ones that we end up missing in the room. You see, isolation, that loneliness is so pervasive. And sometimes that loneliness and that pervasive sense of abandonment is something that God has placed on a believer in order to bring them back to the one person in all of the universe that they can rely on, himself. But not only do we sometimes feel isolated from the Lord because of our sin, not only do we sometimes have episodes of feeling isolated from those who are close to, for, from us, but sometimes the ones who do maintain a hand on us are our enemies. Isolation provides opportunity for enemies. You know how it is. If you take someone away from those that are close to them and guarding them and defending them, then they're more vulnerable, aren't they? Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate on treachery all day long. I, this isolation provides an opportunity for enemies, first of all, to attempt to ensnare us. It might be that enemies say, okay, now he's weak. Let's see if he could be tempted by this sin or that sin. Maybe it's moments of slander. The idea of treachery here or speaking of ruin. That they would see that he sinned in one way and look, he's in a condition that he's vulnerable, he's weak, he's even physically unable to do things. Now let's say he's even worse than that and tell lies about other things he's done too. And then David says, but I'm like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. On the one hand, we might say he has an inability to respond. Perhaps he's so desperately on his deathbed, he's unable to, to, to respond to these slanders and these lies and to avoid the, the traps of the wicked. But it could also be that God is working on him. Again, Charles Spurgeon, a quote, there's a sacred indifference to slanders of malevolence, which is true courage. In this condition, if you are slandered, you're weak, you're unable to help yourself in any of these ways and defend yourself and all these things, if then you just say, I'm just not even going to respond to it, that takes more courage than responding, doesn't it? tried to think of ways in which we feel isolated when it seems like we're vulnerable. 
Now, these are not perfect illustrations, but I got to thinking of our presidents because of President Biden falling down on a stage this week. I remember President Ford tripping down the stairs. I remember President Bush throwing up in Japan. I remember President Trump being criticized for gingerly walking down a ramp. And this week, President Biden was criticized because he, was fall- he had fallen down on the stage and tripped. Enemies take advantage. Shame on people for looking at him while he's down. No matter what party you are, no matter what situation you are, shame on you for looking bad at somebody and beginning to slander them in their period of weakness and vulnerability. But that happens with believers, isn't it? Doesn't it? Sometimes when believers who are seeking to live a righteous life and invite people to hear the wonderful promises of God and are seeking to just follow him in their daily lives and be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, if he trips in one way, says something, a word comes out of his mouth that shouldn't come, a small promise that's been broken, or some other sin that's been exposed, and what does the world do? Ha ha, I see what kind of person you are. And guess what? I think you're like this and that and this and that too. And what do we as believers want to do? We want to get back and say, oh, but you're even worse than I am. Let me count the ways. But if God is working in your heart and your life, he will give you the strength and the courage to refrain from that vengeance. Why? How? How could this possibly be? Because of verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. What is he waiting for? The sense of loneliness has been prevailing upon him. His longing for restoration has been weighing on him. He's he's ill. His enemies are getting after him. What is he waiting for? First of all, he's waiting for relief from his enemies. He's not acting because he is being brought back to the fold, this element of faith is still in play, and so he's waiting upon the Lord to take vengeance upon his enemies. He says, it is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Maybe he's saying, I can't answer, but God, you will. Or maybe he's saying, I know I shouldn't answer, but God, you will. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. You see, God will answer these things. This has been the point of chapter 37, wasn't it? What do we do when the wicked prosper? We wait upon the Lord to deal with him. It is our faith in him. So there's a combination here of chapter 37 where we're understanding the wicked are prospering. And it seems as if everything is going on. In chapter 38, we realize we're wicked too. And when we're wicked, it seems like our whole life might fall apart, particularly when God is convicting us of sin or using whatever methods he can use to convict us of our sin. And therefore, we wait upon the Lord rather than to take vengeance on our enemies that God would deal with it in his time. So he's still waiting upon the Lord for relief from his enemies. But he's still in this condition, isn't he? He says, I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. Maybe he's become arthritic. I don't know. Now he's relying on or waiting upon the Lord for relief from illness too. God is the one who can do this. 
But as he's waiting upon the Lord, he's also relying upon the Lord. What happens in this psalm is so wonderful. God has brought him low. God has made him ill. God has made him lonely. God has let his enemies slander him. God has brought him to such a condition that if we were to look at him, we would say, what has happened to that person that God has forsaken him in such a way? And here is the heart of the whole psalm. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity. He's relying upon the Lord now for forgiveness. Now there have been hints of it all throughout, aren't they? The longing for God, his heart throbbing for him, calling out to God to tell him how ill he is, and and asking God not to be so harsh with his judgment, his punishment. But here is the heart of the matter. He comes to the point where he recognizes because of all of this, my wounds stinking and festering, because of all the unsoundness in my flesh, because of all that is going in my life, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. This word for sorry is kind of an interesting word. I don't think it means necessarily the same thing that 2 Corinthians 7.10 means. For godly grief brings about repentance. You have to have godly sorrow to repent. The word here for sorry is the word anxiety or fear or foreboding. He has gone from dwelling upon the pleasures of sin in his past to the foreboding of what will take place if his guilt is not removed. And so his relationship with God is threatened by his sin, at least from his understanding. The fellowship has been broken And when he says this, he's coming in humility to once for all understand that if it's his sin that has caused all these problems. So now he says, I'm sorry for my sin. Now this doesn't change the fact that he's also relying upon the Lord for something else. He's relying upon the Lord for forgiveness. But he's also relying upon the Lord for justice. He recognizes my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Now one of the things I learned yesterday when I went to a discussion about General Assembly coming up, I understand there is one particular overture in the PCA that is an overture to ask our General Assembly to petition the government to ban transgender surgeries for minors. I think all of us should be for that. It's terrible what's taking place with these young people. But what I could not confirm for this morning, I tried to look it up all through the internet, is someone at that particular assembly said there have been death threats upon the PCA General Assembly for for even discussing and debating that issue. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. In some way, there's a little bit of excitement, isn't there? When you face danger because of your beliefs. My family won't be in most of the meetings. But I shouldn't want that to take place either. On the other hand, what is it that we do? Do we do such a thing? Do we make a decision of this in order to get the enemies back and show them that we're better than they are? 
No. Whatever takes place according to God's sovereign plan, whether we we confirm that overture and send that petition or whether we don't, in those circumstances, God will bring justice. You see, these foes are vigorous. They are mighty. They seem to be overwhelming. Even when we understand we're no better righteously before God than those that we would condemn, Yet at the same time, we understand God is the one who brings justice. You know, it's interesting to me, Jesus was really hard on the Pharisees. We forget the Pharisees knew the law. They knew the Bible. The Pharisees were very moral. In fact, Jesus himself said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, they were the most moral people in their society. They even taught God's word. That's what a scribe did, particularly since the days of, of the return of Ezra into, uh, the, in the, uh, the, the, from exile. In those days, really, the, the priesthood became more than just offering sacrifices in the sacrificial system. It really became evident that the priesthood was about teaching the people the word of God. And they had all these things going for them, but they had no awareness of their own sin. This is what David says. I confess my iniquity. Yes, there are enemies around me. Yes, they may slander me. Yes, they may be overwhelming. And they may, be, uh, they may look like they're winning the day. By the way, I wrote Psalm 37 about that, David might say. But here he says, I am a sinner. An awareness of sin and an awareness of our lack of righteousness is central to the Christian faith. We must talk about sin. We must admit we are sinners. We must be first confessors. If we truly are believers, we are the first ones to admit our unrighteousness and inability to enter the gates of heaven apart from the grace of God. So therefore, we still call upon the Lord. We are waiting upon the Lord. We're relying upon the Lord. We're calling upon the Lord. Do not forsake me. Notice David says, he doesn't say here, do something about these enemies now. Now he does that in other psalms. He doesn't say, don't abandon those bad people over there. He says, don't forsake me. He's calling upon the Lord for his presence. He's calling upon the Lord for his salvation. So what exactly is the connection between the physical and the spiritual? Our Lord himself made a connection when he healed paralytics, gave sight to the blind, and more. He said, when he did this, your sins are forgiven. Not every malady is a result of a sick person's sin. That's true, too. Jesus clearly taught this. We cannot say, okay, you're sick because you are a sinner and here is why you're sick. But we can say that sometimes our illness is caused to bring glory to God in our salvation because that sickness overwhelms us with the burden of sin and conviction to make us truly confess our sin. The burden of sin is so great I don't understand why everybody doesn't believe the doctrine of total depravity, that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin, even our physical ability to move and act and breathe. But the believer, 
a sinner, what can he do? He can turn to the triune God, confess his sin. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. I forebode what will happen if that sin continues because you are a holy God and I am not. And if I don't confess my sin, I dread to know what will happen. As Jonathan Edwards said, we're like spiders dangling over a fire before the hands of an angry God. But glory be to God. He will prick us, pierce us, press us, make us feel alone, abandoned, make us ill, make us feel as if the whole world is caving in upon us just so that we might come to the Lord and said, help me, you are my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of grace. Lord, there are tones of harshness you will allow terrible things to take place in our lives if only they were, to be, they were to be used to restore us. Father, help us to be in this sense like David, that we confess our sin and that we come to you with humility and we recognize that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, your son, who died on the cross for sinners that we might have life, for you are our help and our deliverer. In Jesus' name we pray.